Hi, everyone. You're about to listen to a conversation that Odeep had with the Honorable Rolando Acosta while he was presiding justice of the New York Appellate Division First Department. Justice Acosta has since left the bench and entered the private sector. We are thrilled that we got to sit down for a discussion with him at this pivotal time in his career. We really enjoyed the conversation. I hope you do too. Welcome to Building Belonging, a podcast of the New York City Bar Association and its Office for Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Belonging. In this episode, Using Privilege for Progress. Tanya, Angie, and Mary Ellen speak with Justice Rolando Acosta, former presiding justice of New York Appellate Division First Department. And they're joined by his daughter, Zila Acosta Grimes, an associate in big law. Justice Acosta shares the story of his early days coming to New York, navigating Columbia University, and building the Dominican community in Washington Heights and Inwood. We need to all be involved in the life of that next generation. So it's not just important that we do it within our family, but also outside our family. Justice Acosta and Zila compare notes on their upbringing and how they have learned to use privilege as power in holding institutions accountable. We have to continue to insist that big law, that legal institutions deliver, that they participate in opening doors for people that have not been as fortunate as many of us have been to participate in society. Justice Acosta talks about his efforts to modernize the First Department while he was presiding justice, and how modernization is also a project of diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. It's important that everyone feels that they are represented in the institutions that deliver justice in this state and in this country, and that we participate in the strengthening of those institutions that undergird our democracy and our rule of law. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers, and not necessarily of the city bar. Here's Tanya Martinez-Galanucci. Welcome back to Building Belonging. We are so excited and honored, frankly, to have the Honorable Rolando T. Acosta here with us. And I'm sure many of our listeners know exactly who I'm talking about just because of his reputation. He's the presiding justice of the New York State Supreme Court Appellate Division of the First Department since May 2017. But you also may know Judge Acosta because Zila Acosta Grimes is his daughter and spoke so highly and so beautifully of Judge Acosta. So we are super excited. We're going to jump right in. I'm Tanya Martinez Galanucci. I'm the executive director of ODEEP, and I'm going to hand it over to Angie. Hello again. My name is Angie Avila Lanciati, and I am the manager of development and communications with the office. And I'm going to toss it over to my favorite person, Mary Ellen. And I'm Mary Ellen LaRosa. I'm the diversity and inclusion coordinator for ODEEP. And I'm going to hand it over to our guest today. You can introduce yourself and tell us what does belonging mean to you? Yes, my name is Rolando Acosta. As it was mentioned earlier, I am the presiding justice of the Appellate Division First Department of the New York State Supreme Court, which has jurisdiction over Manhattan, the Bronx, and some other parts, contiguous parts of Manhattan. It is wonderful to be here. I mean, thank, thank you for inviting me. I mean, to me, to talk about these issues is always very important and, and have great meaning, have had great meaning in my life. And so to me, belonging, you know, just simply means either being part of a group or leading a group in, in, in a workplace or generally in a community that are working towards 
one goal. You know, to belong to the Latino community, for example, means that part and parcel of that group that is seeking through a collaborative experience to to get to be treated equally as a marginalized community, to be to be part of the empowerment process in a society like ours under the rule of law. So so that that's what it means to me. So speaking a little bit about your society and your group, we have someone special here, a special guest that I just wanted to toss over before we get into some of the nitty gritty of our conversation. So Zila, you want to pop in and say hi? Sure. Hi, everyone. If you've listened to the prior episodes, you know that I'm Zila Costa-Grimes and an associate at a law firm in New York City. I am <laughs> have been Judge Acosta's daughter my whole life. <laughs> known in my whole life so I know a whole lot and uh, I'm really excited to be a part of today's episode so I can pop in and remind him of fun stories and kind of maybe a little provide a little bit of a contrast to our experiences because we both as I mentioned on my podcast we both went to Colombia. we both are lawyers there's a lot of commonalities but obviously I didn't immigrate here I grew up in New York and had very different experiences so I think that'll be helpful I'll pop in and out to remind him of fun things I know. I think that'd be super helpful. And it's just such a treat. I was just saying this before we started recording. I am so excited that folks will be able to hear just how beautiful and wholesome your relationship is. I tell you, every time I hear you speak about your dad or hear your dad speak about you, I just smile and gush. Like I have like vicarious feelings you know and so i'm just glad we can share that yeah. in the world so well, <laughs> i'm gonna hand it you. over to andrew thank you but remember that from, from my perspective it is probably one of the most terrifying experiences because to be interviewed with my daughter who knows pretty much everything about my life you know can be very scary so <gasps> she'll she'll be gentle i'm sure i'm sure and speaking of knowing so much about your life can you discuss a little bit about your life growing up where did you find belonging? Did you have to build it yourself? And how do you carry those life lessons, those social skills with you throughout your law school, throughout your career? Sure. I was born in the Dominican Republic, in the northern part of the island, a place called Santiago de los Treinta Caballeros. And I grew up there, went to junior high school, arrived to New York at the age of 14 for the same reasons that most immigrants come to New York. My parents thought that they could not provide for us in the way that that they wanted to, particularly, you know, educationally and, and just participating as, as, as equals in a society like ours. So that was the reason that they made such an incredible sacrifice to leave their land, their friends, their family to come and basically start all over again. So, so I came in, I, I, Arrived in the South Bronx, you know, went to high school. They were in high school in the Bronx, a public school, and did fairly well. As you know, Dominicans are known for their baseball prowess. So I played a little baseball. I was, you know, had an opportunity to play professionally out of high school and college, but decided that, you know, with a lot of great advice from my parents and, and my then good friend and now wife of over 40 years, Vasti Acosta, who told me, you know, getting a law, de getting a degree, getting an Ivy League degree in particular is going to have a much 
much more impact in your life and the life of your family than playing baseball. In those days, you know, you were 30 year old and you're already a dinosaur. You're ready to retire. Having a career, having, you know, a great education is only the beginning of the best part of your life. So, so I, I agree with that. I, you know, wound up after being recruited. Uh, in various places, wound up going to Columbia College in 1979, and I uh, did well there, play a little baseball as well. High school, I had done well academically. I graduated fourth in a class of 1,006 students, so went to Columbia College, did well there as well, and I was also able to play baseball, you know, broke pretty much all of the Ivy League pitching records. I still have some over 40 years later. Uh, so I, I, I did that at Columbia, and I decided to remain at the law school. So I, I stayed at Columbia Law School and, you know, decided, you know, graduated in 82, took the bar, entered the legal profession, and, you know, started working immediately in the South Bronx office of the Legal Aid Society Civil Division. It turns out that that's something that I wanted to do because it was my way of paying back. When we arrived, part of the difficulty that we encountered, my father got ill and, you know, was not able to provide for some time. And, you know, it was the Legal Aid Society Civil Division that wound up representing my family. So I thought, you know, this is one way for me to pay it back. So I worked at the Legal Aid Society Civil Division for about seven years. I rose through, I rose through the ranks ultimately becoming attorney in charge of the largest civil trial office. I also worked in the Dinkins, I mean, Catch and Dinkins administration at the Human Rights Commission, where I had a wonderful experience being part of the drafting team of the city human rights law, which turned out to be the most progressive piece of civil rights legislation in the country. And then ultimately in, in 1998, taking the bench, you know, entering the judiciary. So I've been a judge for quite some time so but i'll stop there i mean I, one of the things that i always like to because people would either would either take the baseball track or they will follow all the track the reality is that while i was playing baseball uh, and and at columbia college and studying law i was also because i remember i arrived in 1969 so that was sort of the beginning of the in-mass immigration of the Dominican community. We were mostly residing. We had moved from the South Bronx to Washington Heights. So we were congregating. I mean, we were growing as a community in Washington Heights and Inwood. Of course, there was no social service infrastructure of any kind to receive that new community. So there was no English as a second language. There were no citizenship classes, etc. So I was part of that group of young folks. Congressman Adriano Espaya, he's now the congressman, but he wasn't back then. Same thing with, you know, Commissioner Addis, who was also part of that group of young Dominicans. Dr. Rafael Antigua, who has been teaching medicine and practicing medicine at Columbia Presbyterian for some time now. So we were part of a young group helping to build that infrastructure. So we were the ones creating community-based groups like Alianza Dominicana or Community Association of Progressive Dominicans that initially started as a think tank just to help us analyze and think through the needs of the community. 
but you know later on became a, a social service provider english is a second language and a variety of other needs that the community was facing at that time so it was wonderful that it was a parallel life you know helping build that infrastructure at the same time that i that i study law and practice law at the legal aid society hearing your story when my mother first came here from peru she came here at 18 and she in washington heights took those classes took english as a second language classes and you know, she she got her citizenship, and it was thanks to those programs. So, I mean, yeah. thank you yeah. for me. <laughs> so, my mom says thank you, too, because that definitely set up a lot of foundation. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's the kind of thing that you want to hear because, you know, you do so much work, and you do so many different things. And even as a judge now, you know, you don't know the outcome of things. You decide the case, the issues that are in front of you, you present the facts, you you know, apply the law, and you never hear what happened afterwards. So, you know, same thing with the community work that we do. We don't know the impact on the lives of, of those who, who, who partake in those services. So it, it's wonderful to hear and get a little bit of feedback. That's the kind of stuff that, you know, it's very touching. Thank you. Well, thank you. I have to tell you that I'm sitting here and I am like, like, it's almost like I'm meeting a celebrity, even though I've, I've met you before. I've even been to your home. <laughs> but I get fluttered because I, I hear about all the things you did and why you did them. And I know how much it means for us, for the community and for the folks who benefited from it. For my own mom, who became a citizen through one of those programs in Washington Heights as well, you know. And I hear you talk about it and it just comes so naturally. And I can see where Zila gets it from, too, because it's like, of course. In your in your mind, the way you guys are looking at it, it's like there's a gap, there's needs here. Let's fill it. No one's gonna come save us. No one's gonna do this. If if we can do it, why not us? And I just have to tell you, you guys are heroes. You really, really are. And I'm, we're so inspired by your story. And I love I love how you're like I play I play a little baseball. You said that like three times. I'm like a little baseball. You you know what you did. <laughs> you know what you did. You Thank you have you. those records for a reason. <laughs> and we're so we're so honored. So I wanted to dig in a little bit into why you decided to go to law school at CLS. And I was just wondering if you can talk about the community building aspects of that and and what made that a good option and thinking about your your undergrad experience versus the law school experience and if if you're up for it, maybe Zilla could chime in too how you've seen it grow and change since then, because then Zila attended CLS. So we'd love to hear your perspective on that. Yeah, sure. You know, initially, I didn't start off saying, oh, I want to be a lawyer. To me, you know, you immerse yourself in the work of the community at the same time that you're trying to better yourself and your family. But it was pretty clear to me from the get-go that, that, lawyers has such an impact in our society. Anytime that we needed resources, it was always the law firms that helped us with different aspects of the paperwork needed to be done that needed to be done to you know to file a not for profit, you know, etc. And it was clear to me that lawyers sort of permeated the entire society, right? We don't say this is a society under the rule of law casually. I mean, the fact is, you know, lawyers 
are part of the executive branch. They clearly part of the legislative branch and the judicial branch. So every area is permeated by lawyers who have an incredible impact on outcomes. So, so to me, it was very clear early on that rather than be a psychologist and just help the individual clients that will come in for my services, that being a lawyer was more conducive to, to make a bigger impact in my life, the life of my family, the life of my community. So that's part of the reason that I stayed at Columbia. To be honest with you, I, I got great training at Columbia, but in those days, it was not a place that was that will prepare you to do the kinds of things that I wanted to do, community empowerment issues, you know, public interest work. Most of my classmates, in fact, I think all of them, well, no, most of them went down uh, to work at the big, in big law, which was fine. Maybe at that time I was a little, you know, less tolerant of that. I think there was so much need that, that you know, to me, it was not an option, you know, to go and make money. But of course, the reason that you you do the things that you do, and I talked about improving not just my life, but the life of my family, is that the next generation will benefit from those things. So in this case, Zila, you know, she did go through Columbia College and Columbia Law School, just like I did, although I was not in law review. I want to say that from the get-go, so maybe I wasn't as smart as, as, as she was. But, you know, Zila was, and I think I mentioned this earlier, you know, she was sort of the kid that, that we all hated, you know, in college. You know, those who, who are born of privilege and have benefits that none of us had. I mean, my parents were had a fourth grade and a sixth grade education, respectively, so... I had nobody to help me even put an application to college. So I had to navigate that entire sometimes hostile world by myself and, and those in my community, those around me who, who were interested in my success. So, I mean, I know I, I, I may have given that story, but I did a, a Columbia College 2020 graduation speech. And that is, you know, I, I remember my first day of class at Columbia College where I, I come in and, you know, a class of part of the core curriculum, arts, humanities. And, you know, we're all sitting around about 20, 25 students. And the teacher, you know, puts up a slide and said, you know, anybody know what this is? And I had no idea what it was. I, I thought I was well educated, graduated again at the top of my class at Dewey Clinton. And every kid in the class raised their hand. So I'm like, uh-oh, <laughs> looks like I'm the only one who hasn't been exposed to, you know, to that. So, you know, they picked on, on one kid and, of course, he, you know, he identified the Acropolis and the Parthenon and, and the two figures being Plato and Aristotle at the Acropolis and, you know, describe how his father had visited the Acropolis with him that summer. So that's when I said, oh, you know, I'm a little bit behind in terms of the the kinds of preparation that, that you need to do to make sure that you succeed. But I caught up pretty quickly after that and, I, and with a lot of help. You know, you don't do all of these things, any of these things 
by yourself. So I had a very great teacher who said, who probably noticed the panic in my face when I was not the only one raising my hand and told me, you know, one of the beautiful things about the city is that, you know, I take this class and other groups Fridays to to the man, to the Museum of Natural History, you know, to the great culture that is New York. So I will say, you know, so to me, that was sort of the eye-opening experience of being at Columbia College and, you know, partaking in that, you know, core curriculum that really opened up a world that I, I simply was not familiar with just because I didn't have that privilege. I will say the difference, too, was I was homeschooled. I mentioned that in, I think, my episode. And when I was homeschooled, every Friday, my dad would take me and my brother to every museum in New York. And at the time, I was like, you have to imagine, I didn't know my father as a person who was just my dad. So my dad was a very nerdy person who was obsessed with museums and made me listen to all this classical music, along with one we get on other things. But, you know, he made me listen to all of these things. I had no idea he had learned them all at Columbia until I got old. Like, he didn't know these things. It, I assumed, well, dad grew up the way I did, which is, you know, with a very cultured parent who had my children in the background, if you can't tell. But I also will note that my dad sent me to Greece the summer before I started college so that I w- would be, like you mentioned, the kid that intimidated him. Though I will note, did not intimidate anyone. <laughs> I agree with that, Zila. You are the... I, if, if those kids who used to intimidate me were like you... It would have been a much better experience for me. <laughs> Let's be real. I think, you know, and I said this when we posted your episode online. I was like, I want to, I want everyone to know that we all have a lot to learn from Zila. Let's talk about someone who uses her privilege to empower, not to exclude, which is what we often find in that, like, the kid that we usually <laughs> don't like in those spaces. But, you know, something that you said, also resonated with something we heard on the podcast already. You know, Lisette Duran was on and she was talking about having to build cultural capital, right? And one of the pipeline programs that she attended, you know, taught them how to read a newspaper, how to hold it a certain way, go to Broadway shows. And, you know, the idea there, I think is important. Like that cultural capital definitely helps, but I think it's so important that when we share cultural capital, especially with younger students, that we also explain you don't have a deficit, right? right? You are not less of a person. You're not less smart. You're not less anything because you haven't done these. But we live in a society where these things are valued and it definitely helps. And I also want to remind kids, while while they were building cultural capital on art and things like that, you were building cultural capital in other ways. You know, it's always funny to me when people think that people with an accent or who misspeak on certain words and syntax or grammar because they speak other languages are dumb or whatever those, right. those stereotypes are. And it's yeah. like, that person can do the exact same thing in two, three, four other languages. In my household, we speak three languages all day long. Yeah. All day long. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, I, I'm always, I, I always say that, I mean, first of all, we have a responsibility to make sure that we pay it forward, right? And I'm not the only one who does that. You mentioned Lise Luran. You know, I lovely said, you know, one of my mentees from Columbia Law School, but she also worked very closely with my classmate from Columbia Law School class of 1982. And that's Jay Johnson, who's a former head of uh, Homeland Security, has been a Paul Weiss 
navigating the public sector and private sector basically since we graduated. So I know Jay has been a mentor to Lisette and many other students of color. And, and, you know, that's what we need to do. We need to all be involved in the life of that next generation. So it's not just important that we do it within our family, but also outside our family, which is widely said and you and, you know, that sometimes my wife, my, my house feels like a hotel, you know, you get all the community kids, you get all the friends and, you know, that's, that's part of, you know, it's, it's very enriching for me as well as for the kids that participate in our lives. So it's great. One thing I wanted to ask, <laughs> sorry to jump in. One thing I wanted to highlight, I think you mentioned about how it actually surprised me that you, it sounds like you felt like you belonged more in college than you did in law school. And I was curious if that was because Columbia Law School was so different at that time. And if playing baseball in college had anything to do with you feeling like belong you belong there and maybe i'm assuming that maybe you yeah. didn't feel belonging in college than law school but i think that that's accurate and i i think in college i was part and navigated through our various communities you know i so i had you know obviously as an athlete you know i i had sort of my friends you know and you know the michael heights of the world who wound up playing for the Yankees for a while. And Mike was my roommate on the road whenever we were traveling while we were playing. So so that friendship, you know, always gave you a sense of belonging to that to Columbia. And there were other part other communities that I had, you know, sort of part of the intellectual life at Columbia. The, you know, as you know, the college is one of the most most diverse in the Ivy Leagues. And so there were not that many in those days. There were a handful of Latinos, a handful of African-Americans, and we all sort of would work together, you know, and share sometimes the, sometimes the pain. I didn't want to describe it that way, but the pain and the difficulties. I mean, a lot of the, the, my classmates in the college were first generation. And that's one of the things that I'm most proud of Columbia that, we, we target that population, not just brilliant kids, but kids who are going to college for the first time, like, like I did in the family. So, you know, the, the, there are a lot of needs there to sort of bring them up to, to speed in terms of culture and some of the things that they will need to later partake in our society. So, you know, that wasn't the same necessarily at the law school. At the law school, you know, basically talking about 300 kids, very, very few sort of urban kids like me, you know, very few of us, even the, the few Latinos that there were, were Latinos that, you know, sometimes come from the from Puerto Rico, from the island itself, who had gone to Yale, who had gone to Harvard, who had gone to other Ivy. So, you know, they, they were... Latinos, but they were, they had a level of privilege that, that I didn't have. And, and there were very few of us that, that were coming from other places and, and didn't have that kind of preparation for law school. So law, Columbia Law School was a little lonely, you know, particularly for me because I wanted to, you know, I found a small community and there was a small community of us, the Latinos, but also Jay Johnson, Esta Stetcher. 
you know, who wound up heading, heading Goldman Sachs, you know, so, you know, so we, you know, Peter Harvey, African-American former attorney general in New Jersey and a partner now about us from Belknap. So there are a lot of, not a lot of us, a few of us, and we, we hung out. <laughs> we really, we helped each other. We, you know, whenever we were down, whenever we didn't understand something, it was a group that really worked to help us succeed in law school. And it worked well. I mean, that class, we just had our 40th reunion last year, this year, actually. And it was incredible. You know, Peter was there, Jay Johnson, Esta, you know, all of this, you know, folks, Carlos Rodriguez Vidal, who, you know, was a great friend in those days. So, so you know, it's like you see the level of success of that class that our own little group achieved. I mean, it was an amazing thing. But those were tough days, you know. I don't want people to think that, you know, we sort of breezed through the law school. It was lonely. It was isolating. You know, a lot of the folks there did not have the same ambitions to be a public interest lawyer like that I did. So, for example, my wife was shocked that, that, you know, after my first year, I wound up working with Roger Maldonado, who's a former so Roger hired me, and I thought he had hired me for my legal skills, but it, it turns out they needed a great baseball player to be part of their softball team. So he had just come from Yale and was the head of the housing unit. So I, in my first year at uh, Columbia, I worked at Legal Services Corporation B in Brooklyn, you know, for $125. So my wife, you know, found out how much the kids were making at Paul Weiss and other firms, she could not believe it. But, you know, but that's the kind of thing that, that I wanted to do that. That's sort of why I went to law school. And, you know, so I'll leave it at that. I want to ask Zila to chime in here, too. But so much of how you described CLS when you were there, right? And we're generations apart from when we attended CLS really resonated with me. Like, I do consider myself one of the, like, urban Latinas, right? Grew up poor, grew up in the projects. I even lived in the projects one year while I was at CLS because didn't have the financial resources and didn't, couldn't take out more loans. <laughs> Maxed out, right? Like took out all the loans you could take. And there were so few of us still, right? Still. And even though the population had grown, people like you and me, people who are first generations, zero generational wealth, so few. And I love that you brought up the public interest corporate divide and, and, and the moral injury it causes on people like us, right? Because obviously, when I thought about what it meant to be a lawyer, I want to be a lawyer for the same reasons you did. I want to help. I thought it was a way to bring about systematic change because I was a teacher before and, you know, I felt like I had this much impact as a teacher, you know, with my students, a one to one. I did that. And I just felt really, really, you know, defeated a lot of the times because you can only do but how far you could reach, right? And so, you know, for me, it was like being a lawyer, have to be a lawyer because then lawyers do everything. Like you said, you can be in politics, you can do all kinds of stuff. And then I felt so deflated once I entered the law school because I was like, oh, I can't afford to go straight to public interest. There's no, there's no hope, right? There are very few positions you have to have already experience. They don't have resources to train you. Even if you do get one of those few lucky slots, you're making peanuts compared to like what 
big laws making. And then you have, you know, let's call, I'm going to call them the haters who are going to be like, oh, you're a sellout. All the suffering, all the stuff. I'm like, I know about suffering. I suffer. Right. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm <Right>. a sufferer. <laughs> right. And, and, I, and I learned that. You know, let me tell you. And I learned this from Zila. So, so I'll tell you what I learned from my daughter. You know, we always, we grew up, you know, I describe how I grew up and what I wanted to do and why I wanted to do it. And that sometimes you can develop a very parochial, you know, way of helping the community. I know my community needed hands-on building of infrastructure, you know, rolling my sleeves and doing that work. But one of the things I learned from Zila, and in those days, remember, Columbia Law School was $8,000 a year which I was able to take care of because I not only had, you know, TAP and other, you know, programs given my, my family income, but I was also, you know, the, I had the UFT scholarship. I was the, the, the best athlete in the country and got the NCAA scholarship. So that was a lot of money. So I was able to pay for law school. So I, fr- frankly, I didn't have the challenges that kids like you, that kids, I'm sorry about that. It's, you know, when you're an old man like me, you know, anybody younger than I'm flattered. I am. Someone has not called me. I am flattered. Thank you, sir. Thank you. You know, young people graduating from law school now, you know, are coming out with debts of upwards of $200,000. That wasn't the case in those days. So it's very hard to do that and pay, you know, to, say work a legal aid like I did. I started making eighteen thousand five hundred dollars a legal aid. Now they make forty thousand dollars, which is still nothing if you compare with the starting salary for an associate. But but what I learned from from Zila is, you know, that I remember when you were creating all of these groups, you know, that there are more ways of helping the community than just rolling your sleeves and building an infrastructure. You know, you, you can, I remember you always told me you would go to big law in order to get the paperwork done. You know, you, you would get resources from big law firms. You, all of these things that, you know, frankly, why is it that we need to ask, say, non-marginalized partners and members of other communities for that money when we ourselves can be part of that community? Why shouldn't I be able to work in big law and use my skills and resources to help community. And she's absolutely right. I mean, she's been able to do incredible public interest, you know, pro bono work at Deva Voice. And, and she and she has been able to contribute financially because she does make a little more than I made in those days. So it's, you know, so there are a lot more ways of helping others and helping community than just being part of the of the building of that community. A hundred percent agree. I will also note to your point, like for, I think law school still tries to create this very, in my opinion, artificial divide between people who are going corporate and public interest. I think the times of going on this very straight linear path for 30 years, and, you know, working anywhere for 40 years is just long gone. Very few people do that. Most people have long careers and they bounce back and forth and they go to government and they go to a firm and they go to a nonprofit and they do all types of interesting things. And so I feel like 
what's most important. And I learned this from my dad. Like I was so stressed out. My dad and my mother both had such strong opinions about what they wanted to do with their lives. And I didn't have that strong conviction. And I was like, oh no, I'm not going to, I'm going to be lost in the world. But you know what? You know what your values are. You know what you want to accomplish in the world. And I think you can look at work and law as a bit of a skill acquisition. What skills do you need to acquire to set you up for the type of career and the types of jobs you want? And it's not so linear of picking one or the other. And I do think that is changed. I don't know if you would agree with that, Dad. I do think it's changed over time. It used to be if you went public, if you went corporate, you'd never get a public interest job. You know, that community was kind of very purist in that sense. And I think that that's changed quite a bit. Yeah, I, I agree. It, it has changed. And and remember, not just, I mean, you get the Legal Aid Society, you know, the board of the Legal Aid Society is all big partners from big law firms. You know, they are people that are able to contribute resources and, and sometimes litigation skills and 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 in-kind services to legal aid to help them be, to be able to provide services to the poor. So, 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 it, it, you know, other changes have taken place, not just, you know, the linear changes that have taken place since I graduated from law school and Zila graduated from law school. But COVID, I mean, the pandemic has changed the way we look at the world, the level of isolation. You know, I, I, as you know, I'm a trustee at Columbia University and, and I see what the undergraduates are going through. I see what the law students are part of the dean's council at the law school, and it's, you know, it's a different world, you know, even going forward as a judge, I know that what I've had to do, the systems that I've had to build at the Appellate Division First Department, modernizing the court and live streaming, you know, we talk about access to justice, for example, you know, when I never thought for a minute that when I was modernizing the court and building the ability to live stream our oral arguments, that that was going to be one of my biggest tools to create access to justice. You know, in, in the old days when everything was in person, sometimes, you know, folks cannot get themselves down to 25th and Madison Avenue to hear oral arguments at the appellate division. Frankly, sometimes it's too close to, uh, to 26 Federal Plaza and, uh, and, and ICE. So, you know, folks are not going to come down to the courtroom. But now anybody, you can view our arguments from a cell phone. You can view it from a computer. You can do it from all over the place. So you know how justice is delivered at the appellate division by watching oral arguments. Look at the transparency that takes place with the questioning that we do of lawyers and the, you know, particular cases that come in. And as you know, in my department, you know, it's a lot of those challenges to our democracy, you know, come in. AG's challenges to the Trump Foundation, that comes from my court. You know, Mr. Giuliani's suspension decision, that's a public thing. That came through my court. We get the most challenging and complex issues that come through the court. And it's important that the public sees what happens? Well, how do they reach that? One of the things that I talk a lot about in terms of diversity and creating the level of credibility within not just the legal communities, but in the general community, the way you do that is not just by being transparent and having a diverse judiciary and all of those things that I've talked about, but it's also for the public to see that crystal castle and see 
hopefully it is crystal. It's not crystal in other places. They cover it up with a lot of other things to prevent the public and others from, from seeing how we make, how we, I was going to say how we make the sources, but how we deliver justice. Uh, and it's important for people to see that because when you see the challenges to our democracy, the challenges to our democratic institutions, particularly in the last four or five years, that's one of the ways that we build credibility within the general community. Mary Ellen actually has a question on this in particular as well, but I have to jump in because there's something that you and, and Zila were saying that I feel compelled to say here. Not only should we aspire to be in big law and boardrooms and corporate things, aside from just the public interest, I, I have to tell you, now being on this side of it, we need it. We need it. We need to be represented everywhere because I will tell you, I'm on this side of it now, right? The non-for-profit side. I'm trying to build community. I'm trying to get funds for much needed work and programs for, for our kids, for students who are in the New York City public school system right now to get into the legal field. The New York City Bar has done so much work in looking at where the leaks are and we know where they are. But you know what my biggest problem is? getting people to commit to helping us move the needle. People don't put their money where their mouth is. People don't show up. People don't volunteer. You know, we have this program that's phenomenal. You know, the Thurgood Marshall Summer Institute program. Yeah. It's been around for I'm 30 years. I'm familiar with it. It's a great program. Great program. I, you know how many partners we had? We had 27 law firms last year. Only 27. How many law firms are in New York City? You're telling me more law firms couldn't take on one kid? It's $4,200 for a summer. That's all you're paying the kid. You're telling me more than 27 law firms couldn't? So we need, and, and the thing is, here's the thing. We need people who value this, who are sitting in the de decision-making seats to say, yes, we absolutely need to invest in this pipeline. It's the only way to get equity. So, you know, I want this message to go out loud and far. You can do good anywhere you are. Yeah, no, <laughs> we no need question to be about it. No question about it. And, and that's one, frankly, that's one of our main handicaps as a profession. You know, there's so much, right. we lack credibility because we don't see our profession doing the kinds of things to, to bring people up, not just to, to, you know, partaking in a lot of the programs with the city bar partaking in a lot of the programs that set up to build the life of our surrounding communities. I sometimes will get very myopic uh, about that. And, and frankly, you know, we get an opportunity to test people's commitment to diversity, to inclusion, people's, you know, commitment, you know, and remember, I don't, I don't talk about diversity just, uh, or, you know, it's important to have black and brown folks and women in the workplace. No, to me, the composition, for example, in my court, the composition of my bench that happens to be one of the most diverse courts in the entire country, majority women. I was able to feel an all Latino panel in the fall that we celebrated. We have members of every community, including geographic communities. So, so it's not, so to me that the value of diversity is not, you know, sometimes people hear all oh, diversity, they think lesser. They think less quality, less, and, and there's nothing, you know, frankly, it's an excuse not to participate in the life and to give to, to the life of the, uh, of New York. And, and I tell you, I mean, you know, I, I, I just look at the example 
you know, I don't want to talk too much about this, but whenever one of us gets to be considered for a position of power, like presiding justice or chief judge, as in the case with Hector LaSalle, it's incredible, you know, that you have the city bar, the state bar, finding someone highly qualified, preeminent qualifications. He didn't go to Columbia. He went to Michigan Law School, still a top law school. I know has been presiding justice in the second department with me, has done an incredible career. And still you find others that try to punch holes into what is a white shoe life in the law. And those are the challenges that we're always going to face because Frankly, you know, if you have too many vowels in your name, you know, and you hear me say sometimes, you know, sometimes people will hear my accent and, you know, your IQ drops about 30 points. It's only once you, you know, when I litigated, it was wonderful because, you know, they underestimate your abilities. And before they know it, I got some judgment in my favor or, you know, in other parts of my life, whether it was in college or law school, once they see that you're not only capable, but you're more capable than that maybe they are, then there's then they change. Oh, but Rolando, you, but you are Dominican, but but you're not like other Dominicans. So they try to separate you from your own group because they notice that you that you are qualified, that you do have the necessary skill set to get the job done and probably better than they can. So there's always that listen, that's the what we need to deal with as a society. We need to get past people's differences and stop being so intolerant of those that don't look and sound like us. So, so in that, onto the legal, and part of the way that you accomplish that, part of the way that you do that is, you know, by, by paying attention. I mean, we're going to continue the city bar and others are going to continue to push the envelope. It's important that everyone feels that they are represented in the institutions that deliver justice in this state and in this country, and that we participate in the strengthening of those institutions that undergird our democracy and our rule of law. And, and I think that until, you know, we start put, continue to push hard and, and get as many, convince as many people of, of the reality, you know, because not a lot of us, and I, I haven't been a, a city human rights commissioner I know this, and frankly, some you know, an anti-discrimination law that I've written about quite a bit. It, it, it's the stigma it is is hard for some to overcome. Nobody wants to be labeled anything, and I don't think that that's the way to go. I think that we have to continue to insist that big law, that legal institutions deliver, that they participate in opening doors for people that have not been as fortunate as many of us have been to participate in society. And that's really, you know, hopefully that's the society that, that we get to build, you know, in, in the near future. I think we've done, you know, don't misunderstand me. I think we've done great. I mean, I, I think this new generation and the level of sensitivity that, that exists is something that, did not exist in my days, to be honest with you. I mean, I'm, I'm proud to be parent to, to a daughter who's married to a black man, you know, and have black Dominican Puerto Rican grandchildren. You know, I'm proud, and you've heard me say how proud I am of my son who works in the works in the Biden administration and is part and parcel of, you know, 
to the White House in one generation is the way I like to see it. That's a wonderful thing. So, so, so it, it's, it's something so that, you know, we're going to continue. And I'm hopeful that I, I like the way it looks despite our challenges. And I, you've seen, I've written a lot about what has taken place, you know, the, 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 the affronts to many of our institutions, you know, through the executive branch and, and, and other places that has made it difficult, you know, which sometimes we get a little complacent of our democracy. This is the best country in the world. Our democracy should be, it's an experiment that should be the envy of the entire world. But we sometimes get a little cocky with it. Sometimes we think, you know, we're the only ones that, that have it made, that our institutions cannot be challenged. And frankly, we build a lot of our institutions, not on statutory or, or precedent or, pre, or creating precedent through U.S. Supreme Court decisions. Sometimes our institutions are supported by handshakes. You know, what in the old days used to be called gentleman agreements. Now I call persons agreement, right? You know, challenges like, for example, what is the role of of the attorney general. The attorney general is named by the president, but is he the president's lawyer or is he the president of all the people? You know, I keep telling people, challenging people to go to the U.S. code and find me the statutory section that says that the attorney general is the people's lawyer rather than the, you know, than as a former president likes to say, where's my Roy Cohen, right? You know, so we need to look at those challenges to our institutions, take precautions and move forward. You know, we can't just be complacent and think that we got it made and, and we don't need to do anything. We need to continue to be vigilant. We need to continue to work hard on those things. How do you propose moving the needle on important DEIB issues with the understanding that the legal industry is wedded to antiquity? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I, I, I think that we're going to, we have to continue, as I mentioned earlier, we have to insist on being heard. You know, th- this is not work that we could coward from or work that we can somehow stay away from. You know, our whole existence depends of it. The existence of our community and others that are marginalized and not partaking in the great experiment that we have. So it's important that we continue to insist on being heard and demand participation, that this is ours as much as anybody else's. The legal profession, we are wedded in antiquity. I mean, we take pride. I know in my court, whenever I get to cite to a Cardozo decision, that's like a hundred years old. It's like the best thing that has happened to me that day, right? You know, we don't take change lightly. So therefore, you know, whether, I mean, I give you other examples, you know, when in 17, when I became the presiding justice, in an attempt to modernize the court, you know, you got to do a lot of hand-holding, you know, to tell my judges, no, you, we're no longer going to be receiving, we're not going to have an electronic case management system that's built on Office 365. And uh, Office 365, we've been using WordPerfect since 1960. Yeah, yeah, no, no more WordPerfect. We can't do it. It doesn't work with Office 365. We need to do that. Our case management system only works through Word and Office 365. And yes, we're not going to have, you know, a tome of thousands and thousands of pages that have to be filed 
by litigants before our court that, that perfect appeals before our court. Now we're going to have all of those documents electronically. You mean I have to get into a computer? Into <laughs> Yes, it means we don't get to kill as many trees as we used to in the past. So that means you have a surface computer that you're able to access every piece of document that has been filed. I don't have to tell you. Just one little example. Just getting people to use Word from WordPerfect was like six months of pleadings and holding hands. And we don't take change. I mean, generally, very few of us enjoy change. It's not like I enjoy change. I, I find it necessary in order to move forward. So move forward a couple of years. Since 17, the pandemic comes. And it's precisely what we needed. My court was the first court to go online right after the pandemic. So we didn't have to wait much because we already had an electronic infrastructure. So we had everything e-filed. Everything gets done electronically now in the first department. But those changes just don't take place right away. So to tell people, oh, no, now we need to talk about these things called the, you know, belonging and diversity and inclusion. Like, you know, no, that's, you know, we rather hire through people that we know. We rather talk about things that we know and people we're comfortable with. And, you know, you're not necessarily very comfortable with someone with an accent like mine or, or you know, with a darker shade or women. I mean, you know, in my days, I remember Betty Ellerin, who's the, the, you know, matriarch of the first department, the first woman to be presiding justice in the first department. You would think that that happened at the beginning of the century, but but that only happened, you know, 20 years ago. Then Angela Massarelli came. Now I have a majority women in my court. My entire uh, constitutional bench are women other than me. <laughs> so so that tells you and the, so the ch the court has changed litigant has have taken a while to get used to that idea now you can have a bench that's entirely women or a bench you know so that so it it looks different it feels differently the deliberations are different in my court because I like to think that having a diverse bench and having you know folks who are more collaborative and, and able to hear each other out and their differences, I think, you know, brings forth a, a better quality of justice. So, so I, you know, I, I, change is not easy. So, you know, for all, we, that's why we need to keep insisting. And, and, you know, that's why I also don't believe, you know, the way they get you bring people to change is to hit them over the head with a hammer. That That's just, you know, I think there are people of goodwill there in our profession that understands that, you know, just like their generation went through their own struggles, Latinos, for example, in my case, Dominicans are not the only ones that have struggled with, you know, with a cultural rating into our culture or acclimatizing to our culture. You know, Italians had their own difficulties, Irish entering law enforcement. So let's not think that we are unique. I think that the time has come, however, where our world has changed so significantly that we need to take into account the great values and, and, and contributions of every member of our society, not just men, not just, you know, Caucasian men, not just this group or that group, 
but everyone. We need everyone's participation in order for us to continue to grow this wonderful experiment. And what an amazing and beautiful way to end this conversation. I have to tell you, Dr. Costa, I'm in awe of you. Thank you so much for being here. I am, like, honestly, like, I don't know what we did to deserve you, but I'm so glad you're here. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you so much for leading the way you do. Hello, everyone. Thanks for listening to our conversation with Justice Acosta. We're excited to kick off a new segment of the podcast, and we need your help. Every episode, we'll share some of our favorite deep articles, books, videos, social media accounts, and podcasts. Today, Tanya, Mary Ellen, and I will jump right in. But in the future, we want to shout out the content that is having an impact on our deep community. It's deep for the people. So if you want to contribute, send us an email at buildingbelonging at nycbar.org. We'll pick one or two for each episode, and for sure we'll be giving flowers and showing love to our contributors on the air. Thanks again for listening. Okay, welcome to the first installment of Deep for the People. We're sharing some of our favorite deep content for your screens. Mary Ellen, why don't you kick us off? One of the resources I found very helpful in the last few years is the 30-day Do the Work course. This is a 30-day workshop designed by Rachel Cargill. Each day is something different. Sometimes there is a video, sometimes there's an article, sometimes there is a prompt for you to explore yourself further. Participants begin to understand, recognize, and deconstruct white supremacy in their own lives and in the world around them. And it's an exercise to foster intentionality. I got into it because at the beginning of COVID, I wanted to know what else I could be doing. What is the work and how do I do it? And this was a great jumpstart. And look where I am now. And Tanya, what did you bring today? I mean, if you've followed me at all on anything, LinkedIn, here, wherever, you'll know that I am obsessed with RuPaul's Drag Race. And I have to talk about it here in case someone hasn't heard me talk about it. Um, And that might seem weird to folks to say that this is a deep content piece that folks should be watching and engaging with, but it absolutely can be. Um, I recently wrote about how I do believe being a RuPaul and Drag Race stan has made me a better person and a better parent. Uh, and I, I honestly believe that with my whole heart. And it's because, well, first, Mother Ru has learned and grown throughout her journey in having Drag Race. If you look at season one in the early seasons, the show was extremely transphobic. And that might seem surprising to folks thinking, wow, here's one marginalized community marginalizing a subset of the same community. And it just goes to show you just how deep and internalized folks can have these views, right? And we have seen the show grow and develop and it become more and more inclusive with every season and every possible way. And I will tell you, Time and again, you watch the show and you hear the stories of these folks and how they came to drag and how drag has saved their lives. And you'll see there are folks whose parents love them, support them, and accept them for who they are, who they really are at their core. And those people are amazing. They are creative. They do all kinds of things. And then there are other folks who find drag and thank God they did because it saved them. And they weren't accepted and they were left out on the streets or they ended up having addictions or they ended up being assaulted and have things. And thank goodness they find drag anyway and and find safety. But if you don't know anything about this community and hearing all the crap that's out there about these anti-drag laws and these anti-trans legislation, please inform yourself. Watch the show. Watch a few seasons. I dare you not fall in love with drag and fall in love with these communities. It's amazing. All right, Angie, what do you got for us? 
All right. I'm throwing my hat in the ring with this Netflix documentary. It's called Crip Camp. Uh, it's not talked about enough. And I feel like I have been preaching about this documentary for a few years now. Um, it was released in 2020 through Netflix. Uh, and Barack Obama and Michelle Obama are the producers of this documentary. Uh, so it starts off showcasing individuals uh, with disabilities who are campers at this camp called Camp Jeanette. Uh, it was in the early 1970s, rare and revolutionary for its time. Uh, so, you know, it empowers campers. It shows them what life could be like uh, with accessibility. Uh, and then we quickly trans. So it's fun, fun all around. Everybody's having a great time. We quickly transition from the camp setting to these campers now becoming adults and becoming activists. And they ha they participated in the historic 504 sit-in, which, uh, so this, this sit-in was one of the biggest protests of the time. It was revolutionary. It was, this landmark, this protest, this sit-in was 28 days long. The Black Panthers helped out these activists. They provided them food. They sat in with them. They had their backs. They were partners. Uh, so this protest led to Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973 and the Americans with Disabilities Act that we know as, as the ADA. So it's a lot of fun. I tell everyone to watch it because you're going to leave feeling inspired. You're going to leave feeling empowered, and it's going to make you excited to participate in something and feel passionate about something. So it's it's funny, it's moving, it's amazing. I suggest everyone to watch it. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in, and thank you, Mary Ellen and Tanya and myself. To quickly recap, Mary Ellen is bringing us Do the Work by Rachel Cargill. Tanya wants us all to watch RuPaul's Drag Race and enjoy it, have fun, have some laughs, and be inspired. And I'm pushing forward Crip Camp. That's on Netflix. If you like what you heard and you have some ideas, send all submissions to buildingbelonging at nycbar.org. And here's your quick plug. Listen to our other episodes. You can find them on all streaming devices and on our website. See you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Building Belonging, a podcast of the New York City Bar Association and its Office for Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Belonging. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the City Bar. Find more City Bar podcasts on Apple, Google, Spotify, or Stitcher or at our website at www.nycbar.org slash podcasts. This podcast was produced and edited by Eli Cohen.